Boys and Eats. Welcome to another episode of X. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. But witness our bonus series where we talk to special guests about some of the content we share on the show. Poison, true crime, cocktails, madness and more. From historians and psychotherapists to authors and doctors, we love to get different perspectives on crime, poison and entertainment itself from people from all walks of life with different areas of expertise. This week we are talking to academic and novelist Oscar Jensen, who has just published his first novel, Hell and Death, a murder mystery with Viper. You see, while we read a lot of non-fiction to put the show together, we also love a good novel, a good thriller, a good spooky book a good murder mystery for those who don't know the poisonous cabinet actually has its own online book club the belladonna book club we'll share full details of this club at the end of the interview if you'd be interested in joining hell and death was sent to me by viper and it's a really interesting take on the murder mystery itself i was really pleased to be able to speak to author oscar who's a lovely person and to talk about the golden age of detective fiction where our love for murder mysteries come from what it's like writing a murder mystery for 20th century true crime fans and of course whether or not you should ever break the spine of a book. This interview was supported by Viper. Enjoy. Hello Oscar, how are you doing? Hello, I am doing fantastically, I think. I'm delighted to be here. So let's let's do some housekeeping. Where are you speaking from? We're, we're interviewing today across Zoom. Where are you right now? I'm speaking temporarily from Winnie the Pooh's blustery day, I feel like. There is a storm blowing up outside <laughs> and the leaves are going everywhere. But where in the world that is, is Hexham in Northumberland, market town. I've got an abbey outside the window, just sort of plonked there. And I'm right up at the top of the house, surrounded by coats and drying sheets, which do nice things to sound. That is nice. For all our American listeners, that it is actually true. Everyone in England, when you look out the window, there is an abbey or a castle there. So that's just... 12th century of the latest. It's just, you can't get away from it. <laughs> so you've had, hopefully, a very good week so far because you're a couple of days into the publication, the official publication in the UK of Hell and Death, your first novel. Not your first book, but your first novel. Yes, thank you. It is fantastic. I feel like a, a fresh bunny of a debut person all over again and it is just a joy the best thing is people just sending me little messages as they're starting to read it and then working out which very dear friends have not actually begun yet and and ranking them in order of how good they are but yeah we're in the we're in the early days and um, I'm thrilled about how Helen Death is going well we're going to talk about the book today first of all very important question that we ask all of our guests what are you drinking well I mean in spirit I'm very much drinking a black velvet which is champagne <laughs> and Guinness sort of mixed together something my protagonist describes as crashingly allegorical I think you have the the dark and the light that slowly <laughs> blend together as you drink and maybe lose consciousness I mean in reality I'm, I'm going to play squash after this so I've got a cup of tea and a glass of water but that feels about as unglamorous as the fact that I'm sitting in an attic. So let's raise a toast <laughs> with a champagne flute full of stout and champagne. That's a good compromise, I think. I will, again, I'm sitting here with a lovely big flask of herbal tea and honey and lemon because I've been very ill all weekend, if people can't already tell from my voice. I have added a dash of Islay scotch in here as well, <laughs> because, purely for medicinal reasons, because it does work. The hot toddy does work. I feel if anyone knows how to mix a hot toddy, it's, it's you, right? You must have precise. I, I can see you just sort of shaking it, mixing it up with the proportion. Well, I have I have my old-fashioned ways of doing it, my Irish background, the way my family would do it. Nick, he would be very precisely measuring everything, going, this is how Diffords would have you do it. <laughs> Whereas I'm just like, just the up end the side of the bottle and, and what happens, happens. Here, here. 
But yes, the black velvet is referenced in the stories, which is an acquired taste, but one that everyone should try once, I think. I'll admit I have only tried it once in reality. It's it's not really my taste either, but I have had some excellent <laughs> beer cocktails. In the service of total sort of solipsism or ego, there used to be a bar called Oscar's Bar in Bloomsbury below it was underground it what was... drew you to it oh uh, yeah exactly I have no idea what what compelled me to this thing they spelt it with a k and everything it was it was beneath a restaurant called Dabus and it did amazing cat tankard beer cocktails with names like Thor's Hammer and they were they were truly awesome cost 20 quid but they were awesome <laughs> so do you have a favorite cocktail that uh, what is your was your drink of choice on a on an evening out or an evening in while writing my go-to is increasingly I think an old-fashioned or possibly an, a Negroni just something short and quite substantial. I've got an anniversary coming up and I've seen on the menu they have a take on a martini that involves oysters and samphire somehow, a very sort of sea-like. So I suppose leaning into the dirtiness Ah. of the olive but taking it a bit more to the coast. I'm very excited to try that. Very cold and very much like you're drowning in the North Sea. I'll take that. I would take that as well, actually. That's quite a good way to go, as long as there is a heavy, heavy dose of vodka with it. Well, let's come on to the book then. So, Helen Death, in your own words, would you like to describe what the book is about to to tempt to tempt all of our listeners into your world? If I tempt them, then it becomes like a the sort of thing the publicists don't let go on the book. Like, this is Agatha Christie for the Fleabag generation. That was something I was told <laughs> not to say at one point. But the idea is it's a classic sort of 1920s, 30s style. Thank you. Yeah, sort of golden age, whodunit, proper murder mystery, but set in the present or very practically the mm. present. It's an experiment in part, but a very sort of knowing, self-conscious, but I think not too much so. Story of a of a murder in a, in a country house in a Snowden mansion as it might have been a hundred years ago, but how that works out if you set it today with a group of millennials. That's a great summary of it. And um, I've just finished the book as well. And genuinely, we're reading it. And I was like, no, this is a book that has melded a lot of genres. Ooh. And it's it's hard to define. You're saying it's a cocktail of a book? <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> it's almost as if you're a writer. <laughs> it is. It does have that combination. It's perfect for everyone. It's hard to define. I was reading through it. And I you know, thought I've thought one thing when I started it. And then when I got to the end, I was like, oh, no, I've, I've, I've really changed my mind Ooh. on this one. Ooh. This what, is interesting. Take me on that um, journey. What, what, what genres have you have you split? <laughs> well, maybe we'll, we'll we'll come to that. We'll come back to my thoughts on that. But um, on the genres, yeah, as you said, very much you have got the golden age of detective fiction, a homage to it, but very much in the 21st century. And it's rare that you find those two genres melded together. Where did you get the idea for the story then? Approaching your first novel, the murder mystery, where did this all start from? Yeah, interesting that sort of really up to the minute sense, because I'll let you in on a secret. It is technically written in 2018, during The Beast from the East. But my very astute editor did say, you know, that will date the book. So... Let's just make it in a sort of near present. So now I'm at the position of being jealous of my protagonist for being several years younger than me, which would not otherwise have been the case. <laughs> but And it was that precise idea, it was a challenge to take a setting that is so often a century past and put it in today. Because I love this genre, I love the whodunit, the puzzle, murder mystery, the classic thing. But those, if we write them today, set in the 20s and 30s, that becomes, it can become pastiche at its worst, or it becomes historical fiction. But the ones we all think of, as you say, say as Christie, Marsh, Tay, all the others, they're writing in the present always. And it, it's their present. And so to be true to the form, I think one does that too. And then that creates the challenge of does that work today? And people always say mobile phones, do they just get in the way? Does social media get in the way? And one always mm. finds a way around that. But it's not that so much as people's attitudes, I would say, where you have your, your villains and you have quite a Manichaean kind of black and white view of humanity and you need some kind of cathartic thing where it all gets set mm. and put right that's that's like melodrama that's a sort of 200 300 year old idea of the way the world works and i don't think we really buy that mm. anymore but can you have that nice game that you play where you have one of these mysteries and you solve it and you put everything right without bowing to those quite dated ideas of how to do it so in some ways that was a sort of intellectual start for it in another way it was also i wanted to be as escapist for me as mm-hmm. for the reader and just the delight of getting to write something <laughs> that doesn't start out with sort of an ideological position too much that isn't trying to achieve something explicitly historical or political because probably talk a bit more about my my non-fiction but that just allowed me to have fun in the writing and inhabit characters in a world and just tell a story and and escape into that it was it was such a joy to write editing was absolute hell 
but the writing in the first place was yeah <laughs> really? yeah because it's that domino effect when you have because it's it's all within one country house it's some people call this a locked room mystery small cast of people all in a short space of time in one space and as soon as you tweak or change one little thing a hundred dominoes fall okay page 35 what if we adjust that okay well that's 35 other changes and all these and i had these diagrams of what all these characters know and think they know and who reveals what at different points about each other and Mm. yeah that that became interesting did that give you pause in the middle of it when you suddenly went okay now i have to edit these these wonderful thoughts and all this fun i've had did you have moments of doubt then of going oh or did it strike you that this is different from what I thought it would be when I started. I don't think there are doubts. I think there's that thing that's familiar to every writer is in that the thing you conceive in your head in the sort of base mundane process of getting it down into words on a page, it always changes from this pure ethereal, unmediated thought and it's just perfect to this thing that is a knotty mess of real stuff and and it just (laughs) you may maybe you have this vision of a perfect Persian carpet and then in fact you've got a great big sort of ball of wool that a kitten's been rolling through so there's that but I don't think that was distinct to to this in a way I I found it very freeing to write up to the end I would say I should also give Ooh. inspirational credit to um, to a different podcast, actually. She Done It, hosted by my friend Caroline Crampt. It's been going since 2017, I think, and it is just this highly authoritative, fortnightly working through aspects of golden age detective fiction. And it completely rekindled my love of that genre and reminded me of it from my childhood. And so I was listening and reading and then thinking, yes, actually, this is what I want to right as well so there was a love of this detective fiction from when from your childhood because your other your first books are non-fiction and historical but have you always had this interest then in in murder mysteries and that sort of detective fiction i have on my parent shelves there's a run of christie's that is like 50 or 60 books long and they're all in the same the same edition and being able to and they were quite high up and being able to get that high up and start reading and going into those at quite a young (laughs) age was it was just such a lovely cuddly space to go into this place with all of these murders I found from and maybe there's something about that way of presenting characters in the end quite simplistically maybe or this dividing up into the guilty Mm. and the not guilty that really appeals to a child and maybe really appealed to me and that's not to say it's a bad thing but yeah that was that was reconnecting with that from a young age and then in my teens it was more things like Dorothy L. Sayers whom I adore she's probably still my favorite of these great writers for for the literal whimsy in those books and just the the joy of it and the and the fun but then in the process of writing I've come to so many so many more and I think Josephine Tay um writes the best prose of all of these people but is a bit of a a mean old bastard of a of a person but she she (laughs) produces brilliant books uh getting through Nio Marsh then all of these all of these other people Nicholas Blake poet laureate Cecil Day-Lewis turns out they were all at it everyone was trying to write these and I don't see why that should be different now, actually. This is your first novel, but this is not your first book. You've had a career in non-fiction and in history. I mean, I'm an academic, and back when I was still a, a postgraduate student, I was writing children's fiction, the first of which didn't get me published, but did get me an agent, and then wrote a couple of things I would call magical historicism, which I've decided is totally a genre, but it's sort of realistic historical fiction, but where you, you make the beliefs of a past society real sounds brilliant yes so this is like so so check them out the the stones of winter and the the wild hunt i'll finish that trilogy one day but this is about the conversion of scandinavia to christianity which is like a brilliant clash of belief systems and that's quite exciting if you have angels and trolls and witches on wool involved in that world and the play of the gods and things so that was a that was my dabble that was when i dipped my toe but then i've focused a lot on the 18th and 19th centuries and written a few solidly academic book the last one that maybe other people might want to read vagabond's life on the streets of 19th century london then that was a process where i was applying for sort of formal grant funding from the bodies who fund this kind of academic work but thinking people want to read this i was speaking to the the man who's now my father-in-law and he was sort of oh i like the sound of this he'd never said that before <laughs> i thought all oh, people's dads might want to read this okay that that's an idea yeah so i really like that it's maybe a bridging work because it's taking human interest and the narratives people tell about their own lives in this case the street poor of the 19th century and saying this matters as much as any other academic or scholarly or historical consideration let's pay attention to it Mm. and I just the stories I read to write that book made me laugh and cry so much that I was really driven to that and I was writing that alongside writing this I think so one was very intense heavy politically conscious bottom-up social history and one was a 
silly story about a group of old university friends in a country house bumping each other off. So it, it was a nice balance, <laughs> put it that way. You love the golden age of detective fiction, but bringing it into the the 21st century. Was there a particular time where that germ of an idea came forward or did that, do you feel like that happened quite organically where you were writing? So I actually began thinking that it was going to be a sort of uh, rug pull for the reader that it turned out it was set in the present. I was trying to write the first, at least the first chapter as if it could be in 1925 or 1922 or something. And some of that has has, has sort of stayed in there. There's very much that feel. But everyone who was reading it was saying, look, you just can't have steam at the train station. Like, just stop calling it steam. It's not steam. And, <laughs> and I mean, that was it, really. And then there's a point where someone says, why? He's not even on Twitter. And that was meant to be the moment at which sort of, oh, we're now. Mm. And in, and actually, that's the thing that's that's dated more than anything else. Just I was now asked, you know, should we even be calling it Twitter still in the in the yeah. future so that is, is that dating it yeah, yeah that tells you something about the historical process but it's interesting because then that world that they go into is very consciously cut off from a lot of a lot of modernity but the issues that people are working through there are, are i think quite contemporary so i feel i'm really drawn to the aesthetics of the past as i think this podcast is and a lot of its listeners and this vibe this very you know we like certain textures and fabrics and drinks and and, and feels of things going around but to not to fetishize that so much to to a sort of problematic mm. degree, but really put it in conjunction with with current concerns. I found quite interesting, and it's sort of almost a model of how I kind of want to live bits of bits of my own life. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a way of thinking that a lot of people would respond to very positively, and we see it a lot. I think on social media is again the aesthetic of of the past as well. We love that. We love to bring that into its life, but with a very a knowing nod yep. from the 21st century of mistakes that were made in the past and saying okay we can take all of this but the good parts exactly. of it um i'll say actually when i was reading the book i, I was one of those people who was foxed by the the uh, the time uh, when i opened it i completely was imagining a steam train it made me stop and think and challenge myself later going why did i assume that why did i assume in all of this that this was going to be set in the 1920s and the 1930s i mean the cover helps yeah, the, well, the cover's incredibly beautiful. And there was a moment where I suddenly thought, oh, it's a modern book. Am I going to like this? Mm. And I did sort of stop myself and go, well, why wouldn't you? That's that is such a good question to ask difference? yourself, actually, because it's exactly yeah. what I would also, in that situation, I think, ask myself and then challenge that. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I very much enjoyed Knives Out, for example. You know, there's no reason not to. Yes. Yeah. I did remind me of that, actually. Of, yeah. of course, no reader, no, no listener will now have that experience because we spoiled it thoroughly for them. But but there we go. <laughs> I think having it in the 21st century, you have the beautiful aesthetic that you've created with it. But the people are quite close to home. And I found that with the with the characters, they are they are not sort of these very sort of set in amber past people you can kind of laugh at you're like oh okay these are hmm. this is hitting home a little bit in and, some places and i wanted maybe. to have like the the lawyer and the policeman and the sort of those and there's even an allusion to that like these almost stock characters from that world but have them be real and rather like people we know there's a lot of a lot of borrowing <laughs> from from personal experience in some of these characters i've been getting whatsapps well, from people saying is that based on such and such a person and i've been trying to say Mm. Well, that's what I was going to ask you and what you feel comfortable revealing. Is Torben Hale you and or any other characters? How many of them were drawn from real life? I mean, up to a point, maybe. <laughs> he is my alter ego. That, it's, it was, again, it was like a real starting point for the whole thing because I was thinking mm. maybe one's cliched view of the great, like the queens of crime, like Christian says and so on. You feel you have almost this stereotype of a quite bookish woman writing quite a sort of dashing man as their protagonist like say as Gordy Knight it brings to the fore these issues of how far women are in academia are allowed to inhabit certain roles and so on so there's there's that degree of placing oneself in a role one can't inhabit with those but actually the more I thought about those the more I felt that even those protagonists are all a lot like their creators I feel Hercule Poirot is mm. is quite like Agatha Christie actually maybe more than Miss Marple is because he's this really cosmopolitan mm. well-traveled person the places he always ends up are the same places she she's been in in the middle east and so on he he is this mm. expert with all of this knowledge sort of alongside the institution yeah the intention to detail that he has yeah is much more akin so to much Christy, like her I think. in that way and but so i wanted to have that but also be true to that sort of ariadne oliver idea of like oh why have i created this finnish detective that i know nothing about and I, I quite like playing with the idea of things that one does and doesn't know about so like he is an art historian i am a cultural and music and political historian 
So I know a tiny bit mm. about art history, but not enough to be boring and not enough to always get it right. And and like I have Danish heritage, like my that's but I have a German passport as well as a British one. And so like and I was I've always lived in this country, which is the UK. So again, there's an affinity, but there's a slight distancing. I wear the cheaper version of the jumper that I give him. For example, mine's just navy. His is indigo. It costs like a hundred quid more, and and he's he's kept his hair a lot better than I have. So so in some ways, there's there's that sort of slight <laughs> sense of of exaggeration. Um, in other ways, he's very much like the me. If I hadn't met like my soulmate at twenty one and have and been happily in a relationship since then, because he's mm. he's had a much tougher time with love, poor soul, and maybe it's made him a slightly different person. But I feel. Hmm. I feel the way I send him up and the silliness about him is probably me. And I tell you what, if anyone out there is um, is <laughs> contemplating writing a, a protagonist a lot like themselves, be aware that a lot of early feedback you will get from like editors or reviewers will sometimes be quite cutting about a person that might be quite like yourself. They'll say really mean <laughs> things. The number of books that you read these days and, and through my work and everything I have to read a lot of mm. books and a lot of fiction and escapism again a lot of fantasy where you can sort of see the protagonist going oh god did the writer just create their ideal version of themselves or this fantasy version and the level of discomfort you might feel at points <laughs> if you know the author as well and kind of you're reading that book and going Really? Do, do, is this 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 well, is, is how you see yourself? Really? The sort of Mary Sue situation. Um, yeah, that that level of discomfort, and uh, you know, that's why I wanted to ask you about how close Torben was to you because there's he has flaws all the way through it. You know, there's not he's not ideal as funny as funny as he is. You know, he says things at points which are kind of oh, that's 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 not great. Yeah. That's not great. But he's he means well, I think, predominantly all the way through it as well. But his pretensions do get exposed along with everyone else too. But that's as you've said, your editors are going to start picking up on stuff, going oh well. He did this and he did that, and how much do you feel the knife in your heart when yeah. that's being and, and said like, to you? And uh, like for a psychologist, it might be quite interesting how much one is putting oneself through the ringer there and sort of fighting back over one's past mistakes or, or character mm. traits. But that's not interesting for the reader in the same way. So as long as you know they don't really care about your relationship with this person, it's just about their relationship with them. So so really, it's just if people yeah. found him boring or unbelievable or or whatever, then that's that's annoying. But to find him incredibly silly or or mm. a bit wrong-headed at times that is absolutely fine and what i want it's got to be very fallible and another thing you get with a lot of these you have ready-made detectives especially in the past you'll often encounter them into their career and maybe a few novels later there'll be some backstory or something but they know what they're doing and what yeah. i realized with this one as the start of what i want to be a proper series detective is that we're seeing him at the start where he doesn't know how to do anything or how to be a detective and that's actually mm. not something that happens very much in this genre and it did make things quite quite interesting no. and difficult. And the idea is maybe one day, like, I'll have written more and someone will start on book four and think, oh, this this is a classic sort of, you know, Superman detective who knows all the way. <laughs> Well-oiled, yeah. knows everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a nice trait to see that in him is that he, does, he doesn't know everything. He's not walking in with everything sort of falls in his lap. The mistakes that are made in it are, are feel very real and very funny, I think. And and that's one thing I think that um, about setting a thing today rather than in the 1920s is really important because even going back to Sherlock Holmes, this idea of a Superman who will make everything right and have a reset, I see is inherently quite a reactionary thing. It mm. makes the whole genre very much a sort of in the service of the existing social order. It, it sort of stamps out against the idea of progress and change. And it has this quite a patriarchal mm. overtone often to that idea of at its worst like we're talking about a strong man who comes in and puts things right i mean mm. that's some pretty murky territory i wanted very much to push back against that and show yeah was the that the total, challenge you wanted yeah. to have sort of to challenge those perceptions exactly so there's something there that's wider and there's something there that's specifically about gender and assumptions of gender and mm. Yeah, I, I, I think I had fun with that. Coming on briefly to the other characters as well. So I've, I've mentioned to you, and this was an observation I had in my review as well, is that there were shades of dark academia to this book in a very particular way and willing to be challenged on it as well. But I think because of the group of students and they're all together and their past to Oxford sort of shapes them and, it, and it's, it's quite present. It's almost like Ox, Oxford's another character 
who's sort of a go you know spectre at the feast or something in the book yeah so it gives people that sort of vibe and sort of what they're looking back to and that you know that comes into play further you go into the book as well but again all the characters in there the fact that they've been to oxford not all of them are terribly privileged but they're not all perfect as a result of it is really dispelling that myth of sort of oh because you've been to oxford you're the best of the best you know they've had their privilege they do have their pretensions they have their assumptions and that you know they can be hoisted by their own batob and in this case i'll admit that despite the fact like i'd read donatart's secret history 15 years ago or whenever it was and i mean i haven't seen saltburn yet but i hadn't actually really come across this whole dark academia concept (laughs) until people were starting to respond to this book it's not a thing that was in my in my head or spectrum and there have been novels a bit like this in the recent past where like a group of people Mm. who are undergraduates at oxford get back together and naming no names like it's very clear the author did not go to oxford as a thing and <laughs> no we're not saying oh god what a what a what a ghastly squid they didn't even go to oxford but like the point is there's a thing about about drawing on one's own experience which is really the point i mean i feel if i'd gone to another university that they would have gone to another university right it would be yeah. that sense of because the point is not that it's a particular institution it's that this is a time in your life sort of 18 to 21 for most of these people which is not mm. the case for all undergraduates of course but where things are so intense and you know so little about so much of life and just the pressures that are under you sort of socially sexually intellectually whatever like those are such powerful and potent years and actually i haven't thought that much about them since until writing this book because it's been a little (laughs) while and so coming back and revisiting that was actually interesting it stirred up all sorts of things in my own mind because i stayed at oxford for two more degrees which was another four years by the end of which I was desperate to get out intellectually. Long 18th century history at Oxford, which was my thing, was so much more traditional compared to when I would go to a conference at any other institution and think, mm. oh, wow, this, these are just nice people doing fun, interesting, up-to-the-minute things. Can I be part of this, please, and not go back and and sit port and, and, and you know, have slightly slightly dubious opinions about things? So there, there's an antagonism in, mm. in looking back. But academia as a profession as a even as a postgraduate thing is so different to this idea of dark academia and it is not Mm. glamorous and it is hard and intense and stressed and is very much part of the real world yes whereas this sort of idealized time of of undergraduate years i would say is not and it's that contrast that i quite Mm. wanted to look at great i i could i could rant about dark academia for a while but i'm not going to i've I've got that impression from other people too and yeah i think i agree with you yeah it's it's a it's a really interesting genre it's one where you kind of want to go i really want to sort of delve into this more is that why does it bother me but anyway enough of that (laughs) so just sort of coming back to true crime though and coming into the crime for our for our listeners as well and from your perspective as a crime author people are consistently drawn to true crime true crime is the biggest genre certainly in podcasts we have endless countless documents documentaries the books people are fascinated are soothed by it are interested and devour it in a way more so possibly than any other genre that's out there i was going to ask you why you think people are drawn to crime you have written a murder mystery the elements that they're drawn to but also has this fascination with true crime made it difficult for crime writers this being your first novel was it ever you know you've, you've referenced a, a podcast as well that you listen to was it challenging again particularly as you've put this in the 21st century of saying well how do I do anything that people haven't already worked out that is such a good series of questions if you like and I think I'll do a sort of impressionistic <laughs> set of <laughs> I'll, I'll, roam, I'll roam around uh, that podcast the She Done It show actually is interesting because it is mostly about literary fiction but every so often there is an episode that is a true crime episode and those will be anything from the earlier 20th century to some that are in the 18th century. Mm. I, I very much love and applaud you know, the sort of Victorian aesthetic that you often go with, have some fabulous mm. cases there and the way you treat them. And as a, as a general divide, I think there's a strong difference in how people respond to true crime within living memory and before it as a sense of one, one's own feelings about, about that, especially if it's a live case or if people involved and affected by it are still, are still about. I mean, this answer could be hours long. It could, in fact, touch on when I was I was teaching at Queen Mary University of London and talking to my students about the ethics of archaeology. And like, if you've got if you dig up someone's bones, can you use those? And there is and whereas like often the legal thing is if you can find someone who is related or or then you have to get very specific missions. If it's older, there's still, you know, there's more latitude. But they were very much 
But if we can't find a descendant or relative, then we can't get permission. So we must respect and leave those alone. So I think there's increasingly maybe a move, quite quite a wonderful move to respect the further past as well. Hmm. But there, there's that uncomfortable tension. And I never thought about true crime in relation to this book because I conceived of what I was doing as so far away from crime. That the, the murder <laughs> mystery in this sense, the whole... So much of the point of it is is its deep unrealism in terms of the well, the the messy, horrible, psychologically fucked up stuff of yeah. of that world. At the same time, challenge a lot of those nineteen twenties, thirties are maybe a bit flippant in their dealing with it. If we've got real characters, we have to have some reality of sort of grief and reaction and emotion. So that's a mm. that's a tricky question. As I've already said, I was writing this at the same time as writing Vagabonds about life on the streets of nineteenth century London, where in looking for first-person accounts of those experiences, far and away the best and most immediate way you get that is through trial records. Mm-hmm. And if anyone wants to just look at the old Bailey Online, this amazing archive of, of trial mm. reports, absolutely incredible stuff out there. And you get a whole class of society who would never have their own words recorded because they're illiterate, because no one will preserve those words, because they don't feel it's worth their voice being recorded, who, because they're a witness or a defendant in a criminal trial will give you all these details about everyday life that you never had before. So that Mm. level of true crime is at the centre of my work and of previous books on singing in the street Mm. and that sort of thing because it's just a wonderful source type. But only occasionally have I got sort of really wrapped up in an individual crime. I see a big distinction and maybe it's because I work on non-fiction sort of true history Mm. at the same time as this. I want to keep those things completely separate. So I didn't feel challenged and I feel the sort of mysteries and puzzles that get set in the sort of fiction I'm writing now are so willfully esoteric or the whole point yeah. is that they're <laughs> fun is that they're never going to resemble something that really happened because who would do that? Who would kill someone like that? Yeah, and I think it's a really, really important point to make when it when approaching fiction. You see it where people can get so consumed because they're true crime fans and then they come to a work of fiction and they go, well, that would never happen. That would never happen. So, of course not, it's fiction. And it is meant to be inspired and it can be inspired by different cases. And I've read some great fiction books that are inspired by real cases. Yes. But of course they've taken liberties and of course they've gone off on that track to make it entertaining and to go, no, we're not going to pour over those details because, as you said, it's a very different vibe when that happens there are there are great non-fiction books for that but to have that distinction yeah. and I have a confession that the reason that this book is set in the present day apart from everything else I've said is partly because as a historian even writing fiction like you can't use present day voice in that stuff and I love the idea of writing contemporary voices and I have documents full of, of puns and jokes that only work in the 21st century and I just yeah. want to exploit <laughs> that comedy and so these reasons for doing this are just so far removed from the idea of real world awfulness yeah it's that level of escapism too and it's not about the murder which is richard osman says that his books which are very cozy crime are not about the murder and they're really not yes because they're not even fussed about the mechanics of the case i do care a lot about that that's maybe a yeah. distinction on to you in this section where we're going to inspire future writers or make them stop <laughs> if need be, whichever way you decide to go on everyone has a novel in them but everyone, everyone also has no like they a, don't no everyone has a novel in them but everyone also like has a gallbladder in them does it need to come out you know um some people do have a book in them and you wish that they wouldn't yes you just no just just take up knitting hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm always fascinated by writers' routines and processes. Do you have a process? Do you have a routine that you follow? And you can go into as finite detail as you want on this one because nothing. This will this will always be fascinating to oh, me. Oh, darling, let me talk about my process. <laughs> yes, you'll love to hear this. Well, uh, it's, I mean, I I do up to a point. Okay, yeah, like if I'm writing on a day, I will write a thousand words or more because that is what I do. Well, you because set it is a writing day. It's a an arbitrary amount. Uh, it's the tyranny of like base ten, a thousand words. Why is that a number? But it is a number, and I, it's a number that I can achieve in a day. I tell you that. That's it. Th- that means if I've written half a sentence, then I'm buggered because I have to write a thousand words. And maybe that means <laughs> staying up late at night and dashing them off. The sequel to Hell and Death coming hopefully a, a year in this time. Um, my personal high was four thousand two hundred words in an afternoon, which I just sort of sat up and went, "God, did I just do that?" And then I just went a little bit mm. manic and ran off somewhere. But that sense of I have committed, I will write this many words is quite liberating in a way. They don't have to be any good. Mm. Definitely don't have to be any good. They just have to be there. And this is because when I was younger, I interviewed Ian Banks before his death, the great legendary Ian Banks, Mm. and wanted his advice on writing. And his advice was the four words, get to the end. And I've kind of kept those as my mantra. The logic being that if you have like 80 or 90,000 words with a beginning, middle and an end... They might be awful, Mm. but they are a book. And if you have, say, 35,000 or 20,000 words that are the most incredibly beautiful, perfect prose in the world, they are not a book. So once you've got a book, you can make it better. I just feel getting to that point is so utterly crucial for me. I hate editing. That's great advice. I think you can always tell a book where you've got two thirds or three quarters and then the end is tacked on there's mm. a couple I can think of which have been brilliant you know really and then you get to the end you go oh okay there's a one of my favourite 20th century novelists um, not the favourite but one of them is Patrick O'Brien um, most famous mm. for the um, Aubrey Maturin sea stories besides a lot of other great books genuinely think one of the best prose writers of the century that cycle of books is 20 and a half books long and there's a bit about 13 or so books in where they start becoming quite short and open-ended and he literally has his protagonist's Somewhere in Australia, debate about the final chapters of books and how many books would be better if you left off the last <laughs> chapter and how you should not have this artificial ending. And that's very much clearly him saying to his editors oh, and God. publishers, for God's sake, look, I'm doing this cool thing here. The book will end when it ends and then there'll be a new one. And I really love that. I do adore that as yeah. an approach. It's the Stephen King versus, you know, George R. R. Martin, isn't it, where they had their interview together. And Stephen King says he does 2,000 words a day. And George R. R. Martin is like, how? How? Why? How do you do it? And we see the consequences of that, don't we? Exactly. (laughs) It's all very well having this gardening process. But what if you're not growing up? Is it we need a full hedge Mm. here? And it's it's still some (laughs) weeds at the end. Honestly, George, get on with it. Indeed. But um, additionally about the process, I don't know what to say. I like to write lying down. What's that about? Oh, okay. Interesting. Is that a, 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 what on a sofa or a bit of like with your laptop or do you have a projector? <laughs> well, beginning as a student, it would generally be in a bed because it was the only piece of furniture in yeah. the room, which is a good recommendation mm-hmm. to write at that piece of furniture. Increasingly, it's been like a chair with a footstool or, or a sofa. Uh, I'll sit at a desk and then find myself pushing back from the desk and then the laptop will be on my lap and I will not have realised that this happened. But nice. it just it helps the back. It's genuinely worry about like your lumbar region, people. This is this is important. Hunched at a desk <laughs> is the worst way to write. Probably the best way is to stand up, but that sounds a bit too much effort, frankly. Well, yeah, for the thousand words, that's a workout at the same time. But, exactly. Oh, I like that. It's a beautiful image. I like it. And the other thing, the, the only other thing I would say probably is that I'm in awe of people 
who do the whole thing where like they create amazingly real characters as the starting point and then see what happens to them and where they lead things that seems a very mature way to me of of writing that I've never quite understood because what I do is I come up with a story and a plot and then find some characters who would absolutely realistically do the things that I want them to do so it, it checks out but it's very much motivated by where I want it to go which is maybe why we're doing this genre fiction I feel <laughs> I feel like genre fiction like detective fiction you you have a death at the start to justify the book and a lot of literary fiction which is great might not have so much of a plot but then there's a death at the end to justify what's gone before like it's it's disingenuously similar so mm. yeah I'm, I'm I may be a slightly artificial writer in that way but then things will always surprise surprise you when you when you get onto the page your top tips for aspiring writers so I'm taking I'm I'm borrowing get to the end as the most as the most important thing and maybe start using that for a shorter piece of work maybe get to the end of a short story first or or a poem or whatever it is but in fact maybe I've got two that are about the link between the page and the spoken word so when mm. I was doing children's books I went into a lot of schools and talked to sort of a lot of primary age children and their fear of the written word was immense but I'd talk to them and they would come out with beautiful prose and I'd say well can't you just write that and they had this massive disconnect between saying a thing and writing a thing yeah for them to, to see that they're all just words was a bit of a struggle and we have the facilities now with uh with transcription software maybe it's a bit ropey but maybe if you're really struggling mm. with the fear of the page just just do some voice notes and that might be perfectly mm. good that's quite freeing and quite nice sometimes conversely if you've got a piece of writing and you don't know if it's any good or not or how to edit it i mean in fact in any circumstances read it aloud because when you read your writing aloud, you can hear the mistakes. You can hear what could be better. You can hear <laughs> rhythm. You can realize that that sentence should be three sentences. You don't get so wrapped up. Especially, look, if it's going to do well, there'll probably be an audiobook of it. So make that person's life easier too. Yeah. I think that connection between the spoken and the written is really key. And it's really helpful, I think, to, to a writer from the mm. first moment onwards, I would say. Yeah, please read it out loud. We're going to do some quick fire wrap ups. But what does the future hold? For Torben Heller. We have not seen the last of Torben Heller. He will be back. He'll be back in a year in, in Heller's Hound, which will take him Ooh. from deepest, coldest Northumberland to to Bloomsbury and central London and having a okay a very interesting time there. And you'll see some of the other characters maybe there. Maybe you won't see some of them. Depends what happens in the first book. But <laughs> there's definitely a sequel. And if I get my way, many more. But watch this space because in a year's time that will happen and that's a very different sort of mystery but with a lot of the same sensibility i think and um trying to keep the idea of a real puzzle that nonetheless has has a lot of heart still very much in homage not just to the golden age but going back to sherlock holmes there is a certain rather obvious novel it is in dialogue with and there are about a million easter eggs for you to spot in that one <laughs> so that's what's happening for him and maybe he'll grow up along the along the way excellent can't wait to read it next year that's something else to look forward to so quick fire wrap-ups for your time today now i say can you name your favorite author and can is the operative word here. yes because yeah you can hooray <laughs> go for it my favorite author is knut hamsen which is actually a terrible thing to say because he's a famous Norwegian author, Nobel Prize winning. In his later years, might have got a bit sympathetic to the Nazis, which is never a good look. So uh, we'll okay. just we'll just keep that as a reservation and and please contextualise <laughs> this by going and reading some of his earlier work. P.G. Woodhouse also a bit problematic in that way, and I, I will stand by Woodhouse to the to the end as a master pro stylist. But Hampson from a sort of fantasyekle modernist into a bunch of other stuff just. My God, I've read him in translation by a whole bunch of different authors and the voice is the same every time. And his novels are so incredibly human and rooted and simple, but they're infused with the very best, I think, of sort of continental European humour, which is this very dry, very self-effacing, very ironic wit. But it's very downplayed. And in one way, a lot of them are like, there's a man upon the earth, beneath the moon, among the trees, sort of wah. But also they're <laughs> not about that. They're really gritty and and good and have a lot of human nature in them i just find them deeply compelling he's quite a, he's quite an outlier amongst my favorite authors because i mean a lot of the rest are, are women and a lot of them are definitely very left-leaning and he's he's sort of on his own <laughs> but but i've got to put him sometimes up sometimes it's that first one that you know that comes to you comes to the fore uh your favorite book from childhood um this is also a, a well it's finnish rather than scandinavian and uh, what is it is it is called um king tulle the saga of tulleborg 
and mm. uh, it is again set maybe in a sort of early viking age past but with some sort of finnish mythology in there it was quite inspirational for me that um and it's by emel and sandman lilius but maybe look up king tulla t-u-l-l-e i think it might be out of print in the uk but uh, it was just the most magically ravishing thing ever and there have been children's books i've encountered much later that i think really stick with me and if anyone hasn't read dream days by kenneth graham by the way who only knows him for wind in the mm. willows do check out his other children's writing because that's another thing i'll leave with you but emil and sandman lilia she was she was a genius and her novels are, her children's books are great sensational one murder mystery book that you think everyone should read Okay, just one. Well, Hell and Death, I would say, is definitely, definitely <laughs> the one. No, okay, let's... Okay, um, Miss Pym Disposes by Josephine Tay. It's, Great. It's an outlier because the murder happens quite late, but we are very much inv- invited to solve it retrospectively by what's gone before. It's set at a, mm-hmm. at a sort of physical education teacher's training college, and it is absolutely wonderful. Just as a novel, just as a standout novel on its own, it is a glorious piece of work. A book you're really looking forward to in 2024? Oh, a book for this year. Oh, there, are, there are so many books that I'm oh, I'm intrigued by. What I, I'm going to say is a book that has been previously published that I'm just desperate to get to the end of reading, if that's not a massive Right, okay, that, that'll work. Which is, which is Septology by Jon Foster. God, I'm coming across... I don't know why when it comes to these key questions, I just have a bunch of, <laughs> of like really famous scan- like award-winning Scandinavians of a certain kind. It represents such a small slice of my reading and it seems to be my... I didn't even realise I was doing that. Sorry. But then, I think that's the good thing is that organically, sometimes when you say those and you say, what's the first one? And those ones jump out. I'm discovering I'm so much more of a cliche than I ever realised. <laughs> You go away and rethink this for all your future interviews. But again, ones that people have not may not have not have heard of. I will also just very quickly shout out that um, the aforementioned Caroline Crampton has a nonfiction coming on uh, the history of hypochondria, which is out, I think, in April. That oh, is going to be the, the early reviews are amazing. And I think that's going to be deeply fascinating. Fantastic. So hard copy or Kindle? Oh, hard copy always. I did have a Kindle and then I broke it and it was inherited from my grandmother anyway. And I didn't really miss it um definitely hard copy because we've got we've we've just moved house and we've put some bookcases in and we've got 57 boxes of books to to put on them well they i mean they will be they need to be filled by the books we have but i feel i'm committed in that direction (laughs) now where there's no there's no going back there we go and easier to read in the bath which is key oh i don't know a kindle is quite good in the bath the lighter i always fear the 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 hard copy in the bath slippage splashage okay put it this way if it's by hillary mantel i will go kindle the heft yeah the heft heft is is an issue yeah (laughs) so again with the hard copies do you break the spine or do you leave it pristine I mean, I, spine I, breaker, dogged. I just read it, and whatever happens to it happens. I was on a, I was on an episode of of Radio 3's Free Thinking a while back um, with Emma Smith, who's written Portable Magic mm. about sort of history of books, and she set up this this sort of question for the rest of us on it about our our favourite hard physical book that we have and like we were all naming mm. these beautiful editions or these these lovely sentimental things and then she was very much this was a trick question. The whole point about a book is that it's this mass market completely interchangeable media it's just about getting the words in a form you can hold in your hand it's like a sandwich and sort of yes you're entirely right it doesn't matter what condition it's in we shouldn't be too precious about those pages beautiful as they can be just as long Mm. as it's good technology for reading so if i can remember our local independent bookshop is very good with this is not a quick fire answer it's very good with bookmarks (laughs) so that has helped me not break a lot of spines but i will happily leave one open you know flat if i need to Yes, people feel very strongly about this. I didn't realise it until going on to Book Talk, but actually people <laughs> have very, very passionate feelings about breaking the spine and I'm a terrible one for dog earring, but you know, really? it's there to be enjoyed yeah, let and the, loved. Yeah, let the book work for you. Do you annotate or not? Should you should should a pen ever mark the page? Now that I don't do. I don't think it's because I'm really precious about it. We had at school, of course, that whole thing when you're doing English literature, like when you're mm. 16, 17, and you get the old copies and they're already scribbled in. And so maybe you annotate them a bit further. And people said that if I annotated them and people could see it was my copy, future years would say, oh, that's a really great point because I maybe had a slight reputation as a bit of a geek. So um, <laughs> I put in some very misleading comments about the underlying meaning of Jane Austen's Emma for any fool who would listen to them in future. So I was guilty in that sense. But since then, I don't know, so much of my reading has been in libraries that do not put, do not take a pen or pencil no, near them. So I've, I've refrained since and uh, the question we ask everyone on this show is what is your favorite poison now 
my personal genuine favorite poison is morphine from personal experience if we're counting morphine because <laughs> i i was laid up for a I month think we or can. so yeah good 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 in in the right doses my god give me that stuff i had a i was laid up after an operation and i had this little button i could press on a tube that was wired into me oh yeah and if i pressed it i got some morphine and the five minute <laughs> countdown till the next time i could use it oh i loved that stuff um but from a sort of deadly perspective i'm a fan of I still don't know if it's actually true or not, but the whole just injecting an air bubble into someone's bloodstream. Oh, I like the whole, you know, oxygen itself. Yeah, completely leaving no trace, just the natural stuff, but in such a manner that it acts as a poison. I've always been very drawn to when Mm. Agatha Christie used that. And I feel she should know. She was a dispenser. She knows her stuff. So she did. Morphine or that. Morphine or or, or life itself. Yeah. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been a joy to talk about the book, to talk about writing in general. Hasn't it just? So as we close, please just again confirm where we can find Helen Death, where we can uh, find more about you. If people want to seek you out and hunt you down online, preferably, but if you want to give any personal details and, and street corners, then you're very welcome to. But yes, where can people get the book? So within the UK, Helen Death is in all good bookshops and it's also in all the bad ones too, especially the ones that don't pay, pay taxes. I don't mind where you buy it. Uh, <laughs> it it should be accessible in other places too. The audiobook is available worldwide, read by Gunnar Kothari. Check that out. And, you know, there's always second hand. You can buy a thing anywhere. And if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Oscar Cox Jensen and oscarcoxjensen.com or oscarjensen.co.uk will take you to my website, which I do update regularly because the web designer gets very disappointed in me otherwise. So <laughs> those are the, the easiest ways to find me and get in touch with me on, on Twitter or X as the quickest way. Fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a joy and good luck with the book. Good luck with and the future as well for Torben. We hope to see more from him. We hope he he just his journey in life is a fulfilling and happy one. Thank you so much. This has been glorious. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this chat with our latest expert witness. If you are a book lover, a bookworm, an avid reader, someone who devours books with their bare hands in a slightly upsetting way, you might consider joining our very own book club. We have created the Belladonna Book Club on Facebook. It is a Facebook group where our listeners can share their favourite books, search for tips on new reads, get to know each other and generally share your love of reading. We pick a new novel to read together every six weeks and our Patreon subscribers benefit from a regular Zoom book club chat with ourselves to talk about books and cocktails. You can also follow me, Sinead Hannah-Crack, that's C-R-A-I-C, on Instagram and TikTok, where I regularly share book recommendations, mainly spooky, gothic vibes, you know, the sort of thing we like on The Poisoner's Cabinet. We will be back in the future with more expert witnesses. But in the meantime, keep drinking, keep talking about poison, and remember, your loved ones are trying to kill you. (laughs) 